Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed we are. This is David Eastall and this is The C86 Show. Welcome once again to another thrilling ride of life. As I'll be bringing you songs you know, some you don't and some you should. As I often say, playing the finest in indie pop and beyond. Well, this week's special guest is going to be Holly Lursky, who I spoke to last week to find out more about life, love and poetry and all that other groovy stuff that happens when you're a creative artist. So I've got that interview that I'll break up into probably two or three easy to digest little segments for your enjoyment and, e- and uh, yes, that kind of groovy stuff, plus the usual award-worthy playlist. But to get the show rolling, I'm going to play your favourite and mine. This is going to be Life is Beautiful.
Stunning vocal. There you go. That's Holly Lursky with the track titled Life is Beautiful. That came from her 2004 album, which was also titled Life is Beautiful. It all ties in, you see. This is David Esau. This is the C86 Show. And this week's special guest is, guess guess who? It is Holly Lursky, who I spoke to last week. Um, yes, because she's got lots of exciting things happening, including a road trip that's going to happen in about a week's time. So I thought before she hits the road, I think we should get an interview. And she said yes. Hurrah. So um, that's all very good. So don't worry. That interview is going to come up very soon. But before any more malarkey, I think we'll do some admin. If you want to contact me... Um, um, we'd love your messages. You can via Facebook, Twitter, and even Instagram. Just go to at C86show. I will be there. Um, keep it positive and groovy. Otherwise, don't bother. Just go and see your therapist. And also, all the shows have been archived, and you can find them on the, um, yes, all those usual places like Spotify, iTunes, Mixcloud, Podbean. There you go, C86show. Check it out. Anyway, we're going to play one more song, and then the first part of the interview. This is going to be from her very early years, and this is... Her version of Hallelujah. It's a cold and it's a broken hallelujah 
It's not a cry you hear at night It's not somebody seeing the light It's a cold and it's a broken Hallelujah 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 That is exquisite. And that was Holly Lursky. Actually, that was when she was in the band called Angelou, I realised. Her early years and her version of the Leonard Cohen song. Hallelujah, as if I need to tell you. Anyway, this is David Eastall. This is the C86 show. And this is going to be the first part of my interview with Holly Lursky when I began by asking that interesting um, question. Actually, this is not the usual question, actually. This is when I began by asking her about her road trip that is going to be taking place at the beginning of August. So this is Time Pacific, this first part. The rest isn't. So, Holly, take it away. Okay, yeah, so basically um, I am about to do a kind of bucket list type thing where I've always wanted to um, do the Pacific Highway. Um, I, yeah, read on the road when I was 16, just before I became a bit of a biker. I've always had the wanderlust thing, and, um, and it's taken me till now to kind of just do it, really. But um, I'm kind of at the point where I'm, I want to be writing, I'm sem- sort of semi-writing songs at the moment. I've got lots of them half-written. And I just find it easier to kind of just write when I'm not um, at home or around, you know, in, in areas I know. I've, I've done it in the past where I've just kind of gone off and, and written. So I thought, well, why not just do it on the road? This <laughs> is a great idea. And, yeah. Um, yes, obviously the road is one of those great things. And what was quite interesting, which you vaguely hinted at, is... Um, Yes, one thing I was really curious, because I have a bit of a romanticism about the States, and especially the book by Jack Kerouac on the road, which I read when someone recommended it, and I thought, that's it, I want to be a beatnik. But, yeah, um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and all that. And then once, you know, then we start where we do, you know, went to um, New Mexico, Arizona, and just driving around these amazing landscapes and thought, God, yeah. I suddenly got the eagles and all that kind of sound. I thought, yeah, that really works when you're in these uh, spaces. So as a writer and a creative person, does that does the environment have a big influence on what you create? Yeah, definitely. Um, like with when I was writing Life is Beautiful, um, and I wrote My Love, I was I was literally walking down the country lanes, and it was you know it was very kind of so, I wouldn't say sensual, but kind of you know you, I, I was sort of like the smell, sight, sound, everything. And I just think when you're actually experiencing something, it just becomes more vivid. You know, it's, it's not so abstract. I like I like to write songs that people really feel. So if I'm actually out there feeling it, you know, it kind of just it naturally comes out, I guess. Um, yeah. Yes. So 
yeah, and that's and that's kind of what happens when I suppose that's why I need to travel. That's why I've always loved to travel because because I feel so kind of connected to life when I'm really living it like that, you know, rather than just. I don't know. Like they say, like they say, some people are just asleep in daily life, you know. And I don't want to be asleep in life. I want to be wide awake. So um, yeah, on the road, you're wide awake. You're very wide awake. So with this trip, because I'm sort of really curious. So is this going to be? Yes, you're going in a couple of weeks' time. So are you? Where are you flying into? Okay, I'm flying into Chicago um, because I kind of wanted to. Uh, I mean, initially, it was like right on the road, Pacific Highway. And um, I thought, well, I, I've never read, read Big Sur. Um, I've, you know, I've read On the Road, but not Big Sur, the other Kerouac book. Um, and I, I actually didn't realise that he starts in Chicago and gets on the California Zephyr and goes across to San Francisco. But um, I'd already planned to do that because I love train journeys too. Um when I did the John Hyatt tour, we did it on the train. And it's just brilliant because you can just sit there and write, you know. So I thought, well, why not start one side of the country, almost, head over, you know, cross country on a train, really kind of just just see all the different kind of scenery and, and then sort of begin it from San Francisco, which, you know, another place that I've always, always wanted to go to. Um, I, I named my band Angelou after my Angelou. She came from there, you know, and all those kind of books that come from there. So, yeah, this, this is this is a kind of a um, it's all the books that I've read, and I've kind of like decided, right, we're going to actually go there now, and and you know, see what comes. Well, absolutely, this is very exciting. I know. Yeah. So, um, so with with sort of landing at Chicago, obviously that is the home of the blues. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so um, how many? You know, how long are you planning to take on this particular trip? I mean, is it something that you've, you know, you can be spontaneous, or is it is it something that you you've got a time limit on? Yeah, I've got a time limit. Um, just because obviously it's the expense, but you know, I've kind of tried to do it in a really um, sort of affordable way with things like Airbnb and hostels and stuff like that. But it, it's it's going to be three weeks. I, I wish I could have done it for longer. But um, yeah, three weeks, and which you know just isn't that long at all, really. When you because initially I really wanted to do um, go up to Oregon and kind of like go up to Redwood Forest and that kind of thing, um, but I just realised I'm just going to spend my whole time driving, which is great because I can sort of sing and um, sing into my kind of dictaphone and things like that. But you know I kind of want to be walking around too. So yeah, three yes. weeks three weeks um and um yeah I, I it's one of those places america's because i did a, a a road trip about four years ago now and um you know when you get to america you just think it's just vast you could just do road trips every year there you know what i mean it's just it's amazing well i suppose you could do a road trip for every state because they're also they're also big aren't they and that's the thing that's slightly makes kind of boggles me when I go it's just like god the size of this place is extraordinary and everyone is so different each state but yeah yeah but the the bizarre thing you're gonna get your favorites so I suppose I suppose for me because it's quite different to the UK is that kind of desert landscape towards the sort of Arizona and New Mexico and um, that that kind of general area which I find sort of fascinating mainly because of the expanse of it you know it's just like It's yeah. just like, oh, this is quite extraordinary. These national parks are just yes. unbelievably beautiful. 
Yeah, amazing. Um, and that's where I went the, the time before. It was mainly desert and, you know, Monument Valley and um, Utah, Zion, which wasn't really deserty, but we went through Nevada. But, um, I mean, you know, Monument Valley, it's just incredible. You know, it really is. Every every kind of, everywhere you look, it's a scene from a movie, you know. So, um, yeah, it's incredible. But work, And this is why, really, I've, this time I kind of want to do more green and coast and trees because the last time it was desert you know yes and if I'd done more research I could sort of uh, remember who the artist is who's been who'd started I don't know if he kept going sort of writing a an album on the about each state in America and I thought that's a really good idea there's quite a lot of states and a lot of albums but I haven't heard how he got on I think he started with three and then it's like (laughs) but that's uh, that's one of those things actually it's interesting you mentioned Zion and um and Monument Valley, because we went there. And I remember going to Petrified Forest, and it was like, God, these woods, when they were grown, human beings hadn't actually, weren't on this planet. And it was like, oh, my God, my brain started to slightly go, I can't quite comprehend that idea, you know. So um, they are there are moments like that when you're on the road, which is good. And interesting, going back to the book by Jack Kerouac, I do oh. believe that when I did a bit of research about it, he, he only was on the road for a very short period of time, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, um, and um, when you kind of, when you actually do, like you say, read the, his background, um, like, you know, he didn't want to be seen as a beatnik, did he? And then and he was, there was a lot of spin around all of that, wasn't there? So, um, yeah, um, yeah, I think it's a, it's a very, um, it's a funny thing, because I, I read one of his short stories a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking about this, the how sad it was, that it was kind of like the end of the, the hobo, um, the, when he was doing it, because he kind of made it quite fashionable, I think, or the beatniks did, so everybody was doing it, but then also everybody was in their camper van as well. So, you know, we, we kind of look, look back and romanticise it, but I think even when he was doing it, it was, um, you know, it wasn't Woody Guthrie. Era, you know what I mean? Woody Guthrie was obviously a bit more before all that, and even that was, you know, it's... it's yeah. Yes. Well, I, I know because I was very romantic about the whole Jack Kerouac and then finding out more about his life and thought, oh, my God, he had such a tragic torture time. He he kind of died an alcoholic living with his mother. And there was that last interview with him on telly where he was drunk and he started kind of ranting because he hated the whole hippie movement that he'd yeah. helped encourage. And he was just so bitter and twisted. And he just used to fight with his mum and, and was this bloated alcoholic who had this one amazing book. And he thought... Oh my God! Actually, I don't want to be Jack Kerouac. Forget that. Scrub that idea. Yeah, it's, it's, it's sad, isn't it? Really, because when when you actually realise it was that kind of thing where he just became that book and he obviously couldn't escape it. So, but um, and how old was he when he died? Was it forty three or something? It was really early forties, wasn't it? Yes, and Neil Cassidy, who was his kind of friend and played Dean Moriarty in the book. I mean, he yeah. died sort of walking on a railway track somewhere, sort of completely lost and broken and. Yeah. You know, you thought, oh, well, never mind. We could keep with the image. But look, so coming back to sort of your, your creative world, I mean, obviously, is it possible to give us a bit of a background? Because obviously you've been, you've spent your whole life in music and it's kind of curious to know, you know, like how it all happened, you know, where where sort of that spark came from and what you were sort of doing as a teenager as you became more interested in creating music. Oh, right. Well, to be honest, it, it was before I was a teenager, Um I, I was born in London, um, and my dad worked in television as a sound man. So um, he would bring back 
bits of equipment and microphones and, and um, sort of, we had a reel-to-reel thing which I would play with um, and he would, um, yeah, he worked on a lot of kind of music shows. Um, so that the house was always full of music um, and um, I got my first guitar, I think I was about five, because um, I, I, <laughs> I had a tooth out. My mum took me to a toy shop and she said, what, um, what would you like, you know, as a president for being so brave, and I picked a guitar. Um, because I just, I think just that era, because I was born in 69, and just the era of that, the music then was, was phenomenal. You know, all, all, the, all the greats were actually, you know, they were releasing at that point. It was like Bowie and Stevie Wonder and Jamie Mitchell and that, and Beatles had just finished. And, you know, it's just an incredible time for music. So... Um, I guess being born into that, you just absorb it, you know, and I, I just thought, that's what I want to do. Yes. And did yeah. you, um, so what was the, sort of the moment where you sort of found a talent for sort of both playing and writing music? Um, so I, um, I played, I didn't, I didn't have many lessons, um, but I was in London and our, this teacher at our school wrote um, songs for the school plays. So he started to teach me guitar, um, and I think I had about three or four months' lessons, and then we moved to Norfolk. Um, but, but I think because I'd been taught by somebody who wrote their own songs, it just made me think, well, maybe I can, you know. And then so we moved to Norfolk, and all my um, – everything was in storage because we hadn't bought a house yet, um, apart from my guitar and my Beatles Complete book. <laughs> and um, so I just – started to write songs then really I mean I was um nine years old I think yes and that is the first part of my interview with Holly Lursky do make notes I will test you at the end to make sure you're paying attention there you go I think we'll play some more music then the next part of the interview this is uh, also taken from our favorite album um life is beautiful and this is my love my love is like a bird that sings Sunlight sitting on a songbird's wings My love is like a summer lay First cool burst of summer rain My love is like a bird that sings Rhythm I'm picking on a songbird's strings Tune that I can sing all day Gather your wings and fly
Another classic song. That's Holly Lursky in the track titled My Love. That came from the album Life is Beautiful. That was on Sanctuary Records. Indeed, it's all about the facts here. Anyway, this is going to be the second part of my interview with Holly, where I'd been babbling on about the singer-songwriters of the 70s, and then somehow sort of linked it to the DIY indie world of the 80s. And I was interested and curious to know if she had also been influenced by that incredible world. And slightly complicated question come point that I was making. Holly? Did you work out what I was trying to ask you? Take it away. Yeah, um, um, I, I, I suppose punk was the first thing that really got to me because I do remember I really started to love buying singles um, and like uh, there was a Woolworths in Wyndham, which wasn't too far from where I lived in Hingham. So, you know, Saturdays I would go there and buy a single. And, and so we're talking like 79, 80. So it was things like Sham 69, um, you know, Bowie, Blondie, all that kind of stuff, um, a bit of Scar. And then and then eventually, when I kind of first got my first electric guitar, um, well, punk had been happening, and I got really obsessed with the Stranglers in about 1982, so 82, 83. So, so punk was the start of it, but then I, then I discovered rock, and then things really took off, because I, I always... Um, I learned through listening, you know, so I would put a record on and I would just play along with it. And, you know, that's that's how I learned how to play music sort of thing. So, you know, I would be sticking on Led Zeppelin and just trying to work out, you know, what Jimmy, Jimmy Page was playing, really. Um, and that just continued uh, through, through middle 80s. And like you say, by the time it was kind of getting to the end of the 80s, you did kind of have people like, the Michelle Shocks and the Tracy Chapman's more acoustic, you know. Um, so that's when I really, I kind of went back to acoustic guitars, acoustic music, and which really, I think, pushed me even further, actually, because, you know, you can't hide anything with an acoustic, really, can you? No. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, so, like, end of the days, early 90s, then that's, for me, when I really, as much as I love rock, and I do love rocking out, um, I, I just... Uh, really, I went back to the same thing, went back to the singer-songwriters that I kind of, I guess, absorbed as a, as a toddler. Do you know what I mean? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, and proper songwriting, you know, really good songwriting. Yeah. Yeah, so then, as the 90s progressed and we were sort of slipping in towards the world that was New Labour, that seems such a long time ago, with such optimism, yeah. you formed a band. So did that come together quite organically? Yeah. Kind of, and it's funny you should say like the labour, um, new you know new labour come in because I was talking to, to somebody about this the other day, how the the day that labour came in, I remember. So I started this band Angelou. I'd, I'd been in a few bands before, but this my first band was Angelou, and we basically got a record deal fairly quickly with a local label, um, and I. We'd mucked around with a Jeff Buckley uh, song, Hallelujah, or Lena Cohen rather. Um, and this was when Jeff Buckley was still alive. And I've, I've become a huge Jeff Buckley fan, you know. Um, so we'd sort of mucked around with um, Hallelujah. This label, Haven, said we want to release it. So, um, yeah, the day that um, Labour got voted in, Joe and I got on a train and we were going down to um, Abbey Road to master it. Um, and I'll never forget because it's like, you know, pinnacle moment of going to Abbey Road 
and then coming back to Norwich and waiting. I think we stayed up. I stayed up to about three in the morning to watch Labour game. <laughs> but yeah. Yes, it was a JFK moment. Where were you? Yes, yeah. it was such a monumental one. So then, did the album? Because you, you know, the following year, where Team Tony was storming the country, and we were feeling optimistic, you brought out the first album. So that must have been a very exciting time. Yeah, yeah, it was really exciting, and yet also real pressure because I think the first album, you know, you've had, and I think actually even Suzanne Vega said this, you you've kind of had years of songs building up to that first album. Um, and it's almost like, you know, you're never going to make another one. This is the, the thing you'd be waiting for. And then actually you do make another one. <laughs> no, but it does become very, very important. Um, and it, But, yeah, very, very exciting. We recorded it very quickly. Um, it got produced by Callum McColl, um, who um, is uh, Ewan McColl's son, you know, um, Peggy Siegel and Ewan McColl. Yes. Um, so, and, so we did that in... F- we recorded it in five days, mixed it in five days or something crazy. And um, and it came out in 1998. And, uh, yeah, that was our first album. So then, so a few years later, you sort of signed to Sanctuary Records as a solo artist. So did you feel, because, I mean, a lot of artists go through different changes, did, did the sort of band come to a natural sort of completion? Um, no, but to be honest, when... When we signed, when I signed, um, it was still the same band, still the same people. I I wrote all the songs anyway, but um, they it was Sanctuary who decided because there were lots of artists at that point um, finding success as singer songwriters like Katie Tunstall and you know Dame well, I won't say Dame but a lot of female singer songwriters. They thought it, we, that we would do better if it was just done as. Uh, my name, which was awful, really, because it totally it meant everybody who knew Angelou didn't know who Holly Lursky was, and the other way around. So they kind of, in a sense, kind of killed all the stuff that you know everything that we'd done beforehand. You know, all the groundwork. They just you know ruined it, really. But um, but they weren't positives. But that's record labels for you. You know, they kind of have these great ideas, and then you know a few years later, something else comes in. And um, they change their mind about how they're going to market something. Yes, because yeah. one thing I've noticed, because you know, having interviewed lots of bands, there's a kind of a, a strange a five-year narrative where, and obviously, yeah, but you, yes, because you, you weren't completely a solo artist. There, you were in a band, and and normally people get together, they sort of create a bit of a sound after about twelve to eighteen months. And in, in the sort of the 80s, you know, say John Peel would give it a spin and that would sort of give you that extra sort of coverage and then a John Peel session, that first album. So things were going really well here. And then the tricky second album. And then there was other issues. There was the band dynamics. There was the business side and just keeping things going. So how did you find it? Because you've managed to sort of keep making music, but occasionally having kind of kind of quite gaps between yeah. albums. Yeah, well, we had, I did three albums, um, first of all, so it was 98, 2000, 2003. So in a sense, that was kind of the classic way you did it, you know, we could release an album every couple of years or something. But by that point, the last um, 2003 one, where we, we finally broke onto the radio, finally got the tour, John Hyde, really going for it with a big label, but unfortunately, this big label, Sanctuary, um, 
got so big that they signed Beyonce and Morrissey and all these artists, but Beyonce never delivered her album. Apparently, this is what they say. And so it kind of ruined Sanctuary, really. They they um they ended up uh the, the whole company folded really. And um uh, not I'm blaming Beyonce, but <laughs> no. Um they just they kind of overinvested, really, I think. That's what happened. And she and they she didn't deliver the album. So it obviously the knock-on effect was um the end of you know, sanctuary. Um and small artists like me um, you know, they, we just didn't get any support at all. So that kind, of, that experience really put me off the music industry for a long time. Um, and yet, but me, while while that that was happening, there was also the crossover of downloads was starting. Um, and so I started to think, well, if I'm ever going to do this again, I'm just going to do it on my own, under my own, on my own label, under my own steam. And so I started to think about recording myself and just doing everything. So, you know, I didn't have a band anymore, nothing. I thought, well, I'm just going to do it for pleasure. And that's what I did. And um, then I made Wooden House and that came out in 2015. Yes. God, that's amazing. Because that's the one thing that's sort of the other thing that really trips people up because it's such a a dark art, isn't it? It's, it's, It's kind of the publishing world and sort of who owns what and you know, understanding that. How did you manage to navigate those waters? Did you have any sort of um, good advice or just read the contracts well or did it just like, mm, that wasn't such a great moment? Uh, yeah, I mean, trial and error. Um, one manager once said to me, and I always remember this piece of advice, and if anybody's listening who, who is thinking about record deals, etc. but um, the, it used to be um, treat your record company like your bank and your publisher like your pension. Because basically, you know, with when it comes to songs and your songwriting, you could you could have years of support from that, you know. So never try to be really careful about how you sign away your songs. Um, but apart from that, I mean really it was just it was reading about it, you know. I mean I joined, I did the usual things, I joined Musicians Union, I read loads of books, um, and you read the contract, but to be honest, even if you do read the contract, it's it's really hard to it's hard not to get slightly um uh well unless you're a very very big artist, it's hard to make a lot of money from it. You yes, know? just not going to. And and I don't know if people really expect to these days, but when I was signing, you know, people would get signed for I don't know two hundred thousand pound development deal and and they'll never even release anything you know that just i don't think anybody would get that anymore because they're just there isn't money in the record companies like there used to be it's it's much more in the live circuit you know yes i know this is the merchandising it's it's so yeah. critical and with your you know because obviously you've been sort of playing music now for decades mm-hmm. have you have you still felt or still managed to sort of keep your followers from those early years you know have they sort of come with you through your journey you know making music yeah Yeah, funny enough they have I've I've got a lot of um people who saw me in the Angelou days who um still come to the gigs um now I'm starting to gig again and and funny enough a a very old friend who who came to my band before that Rainbirds um she's actually helping out as my publicist now because she's a journalist so (laughs) you know um yeah there's, there's it's funny how um loyal i guess people are 
Um, and I guess it, uh, it's nice to think that I haven't wasted my time and people still love my songs, you know. Um, no, it's really, it's lovely. It's really lovely, actually. Indeed, you haven't wasted your time, he says, as if that means anything. Anyway, that's the second part of my interview with Holly Lursky. Um, still a little bit more to go, but I think we'll break it up with another song. This is from her band, Angelou, and this is taken from her 1998 album, Auto Miracles, and this is She Stays.
Amazing. There you go. That's uh, another track by Holly Lusky. That was when she was in the band Angelou, and that was a track she stays from Auto Miracles. This is going to be the third part of my interview with, with her. I mean, I mean, if you're a fan, fill your boots. If you're not, you should be. Um, and do check out her work again if you haven't listened to it for a long time. Anyway, this is the next part where I'd been babbling on like a demented person about, um, yes, the alt country scene for some reason. Um, I don't know. Keeps me, keeps me amused. Anyway, and I was talking about people like Gillian Wells, Stacey Earle and Dar Williams and whether that work had filtered into her creative endeavours and this was her reply Holly I know you know how to um I mean well sort of um not I was going to say patronise not patronise but more just uh go with the flow and this was her response take it away yeah definitely I think those are the kind of people I probably you know Gillian Welsh all that kind of stuff I, I love Joy Williams you know I love um Music that really feels like it's been really played well, and that oops, what's that? Um, it's just not about it's not bombastic, you know. I think you know when you're when you're younger, you you possibly or I did want to kind of like be making a really big noise, um, but um, no, you know, you just you just get a bit more sensitive, I guess, um, as you. Uh, as you get older, and I and I love sophisticated music. I tell you, a band that I really love, um, Punch Brothers, and, and they're you know their playing is phenomenal. It's lovely stuff. Have you have you are you? No, I have I have not ever come across the Punch Brothers. I will Google them and look at them on Spotify later, which is very exciting. I know it's always, but I suppose actually one thing I've really noticed that I've. And, the, and that's something that sort of really has come out of doing lots of interviews is the, the gatekeepers, because in the old days there was probably less but more obvious people. And, the you know, the example yeah. is kind of people like John Peel. So yeah. he had this kind of audience and then you had the music papers. And so there were fewer gatekeepers of kind of, I suppose, broadcasting, whereas now there is just so much. It's like, oh, my God, I don't know where to start. And who do you just sort of trust to, to say, look, I've just been listening to lots of music. This is a great indie song or this is a great African song. This is a yeah. good rap, you know, rap song, which yeah. John Peel used to do for me, whereas now it's like, Oh dear, I'm completely lost with it. Yeah, and yet you know, I really like that now because I I, I did used to find, um, and especially being a, a you know back then a girl, you know that there there were only a few gatekeepers, and and actually most of them were male. <laughs> you have to admit, you know, yes, there was like Janice Long and um, Annie Nightingale, but you know what I mean? There weren't that many. Yes. And, um, so, <laughs> You know, it was it, it. really was a kind of like with record companies. There were just all, there were all these gatekeepers, and there were all these walls that you just kind of you were very controlled. And even though, as a musician, you know, who I have stuff up on Spotify, and people that say, you know, what do you feel about Spotify and things like that? You know, initially I did feel with downloads like somebody's just basically given away the key, but. But you know, equally with that freedom, you suddenly it's it's now it's like a democracy. You know what I mean? It's like it, there is so much out there, and it's up to you to go and find it. And, and hopefully, you know, if you're lucky, it does help having algorithms and stuff like that. For, <laughs> Yes. No, I completely agree with that. Um, having spoke to a few people who didn't get the kind of, 
I mean, it's a bit un- not unfair, but you know, I, who who obviously didn't get on the John Peel show and then feel still quite bitter only thirty years later. Go, no, he didn't like us and we didn't get it, so we struggled through another avenue. And you went, yes, I know. It was it was kind of like, yeah, I can see that. You know, I can hear that side of the story that there is one person, and like you said, it was very male dominated, and the music journalist. You know, some of them were just awful and unpleasant about people. And so a, a good review in The Enemy would be amazing because they sold 100,000 copies a week, which is unbelievable. But a bad review would, would destroy a band. And, you know, you're being written by a 25-year-old who possibly was just a bit of a twerp. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, as a musician back then, um, you know, and God, I one of my albums got totally mauled in the mojo, um, and yet, like my other two, were absolutely given the absolute shining kind of reviews. And, and you kind of think one person's got the power to destroy your career. It's ridiculous, really. You know, why should we even be caring what one person thinks? It's so kind of like back at school with the in crowd and the out crowd. I, I, you know, I really don't like any of that. And, and again, that's something that really put me off about the music industry. You know, I don't believe that, that there should just be these tastemakers at the top. You know, it's ridiculous. Influence, so, yes, on Instagram, the influencers. Yeah, and it, and it stops, and it kind of does stop creativity in a way because, well, it doesn't stop it, but, you know, it it, um, it it influences you so you can think, oh, I don't know. You know, you've got to be a bit braver, I guess, if you've got people who, who you know could potentially slaughter you, <laughs> you know. So, you know, I just don't like all that. I think people should be free to be as creative and, and open with their tastes and music as possible. And, and she'll just get a much more interesting mix of music, you know. And, and that's the thing that I found when I went to Spain the first time. Because, like, you know, you would go, you would play a gig and, and the next night there might be a reggae band and the next night, rock, you know, everybody would go and see. It wouldn't be like you these people go and see that band and this person goes see that genre you everybody seemed to see all genres um in a place like spain it's probably changed now but it just felt much more god people were so open-minded compared to england back then you know yes absolutely so coming coming forward to the moment the very the moment in the next couple of weeks you're going to be on the road um do you have a sort of a, a plan of kind of both kind of creating and writing when you're on the road and then recording you know I just wonder because some people have that project in their mind a slight plan thinking right I'm going to sort of set myself a task I just wondered if if you're feeling like god I'm going to hit this one with great enthusiasm <laughs> I don't know really because um I ha- I, um, I don't like to think oh I've got to have like 10 songs or 20 finished songs by the end of it and because I'm quite a perfectionist and I've never been I'm more about quality rather than quantity. But I, so I, I kind of, I want to keep it so it's open. So where I've got a lot of thoughts, I've got a lot of ideas, I've got a lot of poems and lyrics, but I equally kind of want to see what I feel when I'm in places because I know that things will come, you know. And I know I probably won't come back with lots of finished songs at all, but I know that I'll come back with loads and loads of, ideas and maybe some finished songs and you know it I know it will shape what I've got um so who knows you know it's 
that's if I come back. I mean, you know, I'm, I might, I'm going surfing, so I might drown. So hopefully I won't. But <laughs> God. Not after your sort of the irony with your Jeff Butley kind of session would be like, no, don't do that. Indeed. And that is going to be the last part of my interview with Holly Lursky, who was talking about um, her life in music and also the early years and her current travels. That is going to be taking place this month, August 2019, just in case you were wondering. Best of luck. Hope it goes well. And uh, yes, thank you ever so much for the interview. Um, this has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, Without me sounding too desperate, you can, as long as it's nice. Um, you can via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just go to at C86show. Also, they're all being archived on podcast land, so you can find them on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, and Mixcloud. Indeed, the magic fall. Anyway, thank you. I'm going to leave you with a couple more tracks. This is going to be taken from her 2015 album, which was titled, the album this is, was titled The Wooden House. And this is O Atoms. Oh, molecules. This has been David Esau. Thank you. Have a great week.
Cutting in needles and paper round wood Made me a body so precious and good But God only knows I'm only flesh and blood Only flesh and blood Broadering blankets, you covered my shame Tattoo my skin with angelic names God knows I shouldn't, but I took it all the same God knows I took it all the same and blood.